We are almost to the end. Next week, we'll mark our final Sunday in Exodus. A little sad, but, and I'm still not telling you where we're going next, even though I know I'm still not telling you. It'll eventually be in the bulletin, but you'll be all right. Um, We've seen the command, and we have seen the faithfulness of Israel. Now it's time to start to see the completion of all of this work that we have been going over for chapter after chapter after chapter. And it's a reminder, especially in this section of this chapter, of what separates biblical Christianity from other, air quote, faiths. And the biggest thing is that it's rooted in history. This is why I make such a big deal about the, um, you know, the History Channel specials and National Geographic Channel. There's too many channels now for me to keep up that do this stuff. It used to just be easy. I could rail against the History Channel. Life was simple. And now there's like YouTube documentaries and it's, it's a nightmare. So, but it's, this is, it's, it is all the History Channel's fault. We always start there and move out. So, um, The reason why I make a big deal out of that is because what are they trying to attack more often than not? They're trying to attack the historical basis. Welcome to why the Christian loves history, loves science, and loves archaeology. Because the more you do it, guess what we find out? The Bible's right. The more you do it, the more... My, my favorite is go research the Hittites, just for fun. Because they're all over your Old Testament. And for centuries, I mean literal centuries, um, historians told you that the Hittites didn't exist, that they were a made-up people by the Bible. And then we started digging around, and we're like, we, we, we found the Hittite cities, and we found their texts, and oops, our bad. And so that, that vindicated scripture, and they're all like, we're so sorry we doubted the Bible all these years. We won't do that anymore. Yeah, no, they never do that. They never do that. I always point out, how does a fairy tale begin? Once upon a time. And what does it never include? Details. It never includes details. Remember back to when you were a teenager? What was the first rule of talking to your parents? Never included what? Where are you going? Out. When are you going to be back? Later. Who are you going to go out with? Some friends. <laughs> yeah, you, you never said, well, at 542, I'm meeting Joe and we're going bowling. And then at 615, we're going to get... You never did that because the more information like that you gave, the more likely you were going to get busted for doing something you were supposed to be doing later on. So you left everything vague. Guess what your Bible doesn't do at all? It doesn't leave anything vague. And we get a little picture of that this week. And here's the next fun part. We can learn from that too. So that's going to be the fun of Exodus 40. Sound good? Let's dive in. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, all right, time out. You knew I was going to stop right there. I do that every week, right? In case you thought that the horse was dead and we were going to stop beating it, the answer to that from your Bible is always... No, we are not only going to beat the dead horse, we are going to bludgeon it until it is ground to powder. This is a historical faith grounded in the work of God. What God is doing, what God is commanding, what God is demonstrating always and forever. You see this going all the way back to John 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Catch the argument that Jesus is making. It's multifaceted there. Why can he testify to the things he testifies about? Because he's guessing? 
because he knows. The problem with the people is they doubt the testimony even though he is demonstrating what he has seen. What's his proof of that? The fulfillment of the historical working of Israel. When Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, we're not, that's, um, that's in numbers. We're not, we're not going to get to that in Exodus. But the Israelites sinned in the wilderness. Big shock, right? Who would have saw that one coming? And so God sends the serpents to smite the people because when in doubt, we need a good smiting in the Old Testament. And they were healed from the bite of the poisonous snakes by what? Looking upon the bronze serpent that was raised up on the staff in the camp. Why? Does looking at a bronze statue remove poison from your ankles? Not the last time I checked, but it does for Israel, which means trusting that what God has commanded, following the method that he has given, will demonstrate what? Your faith in who he is and what he has promised, and that will grant redemption. In this case, deliverance from the poison. Jesus is pointing out that bronze serpent being lifted up wasn't about poisonous snakes. It was about the redemption of God, which will be fully found in him. So the proof of what Jesus is testifying to is in the fulfillment of the historical events of Israel as they walk through the commands of God. The commands of God that we are once again picking up on here in chapter 40. So, verse 2. On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. That's actually pretty significant. Who remembers when the calendar for the Israelites began? Bueller, Bueller. Exodus chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Passover was the beginning of the calendar. What was significant about Passover, you may wonder? Remember what that is? Why do the Israelite children live? Because killing a lamb and spreading his or children don't die. What is going on here? Microphones decided to misbehave. It must be too cold today. <laughs> killing a lamb, slaughtering it, spreading its blood on doorposts saves children, right? No, if that was the case, hospitals would be a much different weird place. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, you'd be like, you want to come visit our kids in the hospital? No, no, I don't. Not, not even a little bit. I don't have enough rubber boots for that. What is the proof? As you were obedient, the lesson is what? That why is, it, why is the angel of death going through and killing the firstborn? It's a judgment upon the sin that is Egypt. What's the deliverance for that sin? A sacrifice in place. Does the lamb cover? Is the lamb sufficient? No, but it is obedient to what God has promised. So in other words, demonstrating your faith. So excuse me, keeping this in mind, if you were an Israelite, in Egypt, and you slaughtered the lamb, but you didn't put the blood in the doorpost, what was happening to your kid that night? Yeah, nothing good. If you were an Egyptian, and you were in Egypt that night, and you slaughtered the lamb, and you consumed it properly, and you put the blood on the doorpost, what was happening to your child that night? They'd be saved. Why? Had nothing to do with Israel, had everything to do with an act of faith and obedience unto God. In other words, worshiping rightly the way that he has commanded, as in Jesus pointing out that there's how many ways to the Father? but one. You don't get to come up with a new one. You don't get to do this on your own. The same lesson is being taught here. Israel is intentionally being reminded that you will erect the tabernacle, the means of worship, sacrifice, praise, and communion with God will be connected to the delivering work of God. 
In other words, your access to him is granted because of the delivering work that he has already done. This is how this is supposed to be. It's January, which means it's, it's new year, new me, right? No, no it isn't. It's new you, new year. That's the way this is supposed to work. That's the direction this is supposed to be in. You are not new because the calendar flipped. You are not new because you have made some grand commitment. You are not new because you have decided to do things better this year. You are new because the Holy Spirit has worked inside of you by the grace and mercy of God because of the work of Christ, Romans 8. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Jesus talked about this. Or rather, not Jesus, but John talked about this. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who are born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I apologize in your bulletin, because I probably have that one wrong. For some other reason on my sheet that says John 9, 1 through 13, it's supposed to say John 1, 9 through 13. So apparently, get a little dyslexic there as I was typing. I apologize. So if you're following along at home and want to check me on that one later, you might want to correct that one in your bulletins. Sorry. Now, remember those Time Life commercials where they used to play like all these great songs but only play them in 10-second increments? Yeah. I, to this day, I, I finally went a couple of years ago. They used to do the, the, the country hits, and I would, for, I, to, to this day, I will still walk around my house and go, out in the West Texas town of El Paso, I fell in love with a Mexican girl. And that's the only part of that song I know, because I've never listened, I've listened to the song one time, discovered the song is absolutely terrible, by the way, but it was always on those Time Life commercials, and that's the only part I knew for years. I finally looked it up on YouTube. Go look it up. It's terrible. He falls in love with the waitress, and then she can't marry him, and then he shoots somebody, and he dies in the end. The song's terrible. Everybody dies in the end. It, it's, it's like a bad Shakespearean play. Everybody's dead in the end. Um, no, no, it's not. But I forever have that little piece of it stuck in my head because of stupid Time Life commercials. Yes, the, the whole collection. There you go. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I promise. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> The Tabernacle Time Life Greatest Hits Collection is verses 3 through 15 because it's everything we have covered before. So since we have covered it and we covered everything twice because we covered it when God commanded it and then we covered it when um, a Hissamak and a Holiab built it, we're not going to spend like an hour and a half on it this morning. Sound fair? But it's in there, so we're going to do what? We're going to read it. You shall place the Ark of the Testimony there. You shall screen the Ark with the veil. A little bit of reminder. Even though God will be dwelling amongst the people, because they are such a lovely and cleansed and pure and holy people, right? <laughs> because of that, do they just get to go stand willy-nilly before the presence of God? No, therefore the veil is there to keep the people separated. When does the veil get removed, you might ask, Matthew 27. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold... What's our rule? Every time you see, behold, something important is coming. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. Israel's being reminded here that God will dwell amongst the camp, but can you, Israelite, go running into the tabernacle and stand before God? No, there is something needed for that. Christian, 
can you go into the tabernacle that is God's throne room in heaven and stand before him? Yes, because of the work that Christ has done. The better sacrifice, the complete sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats were insufficient. The blood of Christ is wholly sufficient and complete. So, you shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it. You shall bring in the lampstand and mount its lamps. Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering in front of the doorway of the tabernacle at the tent of meeting. Because remember, these materials and these works are pointing to something. Not just to the work of priests, but to the work of the priest. Very dry today, I apologize. Hebrews 9. If the blood of bulls and goats, and I'm sorry, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is one of those things I always point out. Sorry, I had a cough, hit the button, and then hit it again. Didn't really, I don't want to cough into the microphone. Nobody wants to hear the sound of that, least of all me, because I get the weird little echo thing, so it sounds even worse. Always remember this, Christian, because this is the thing that, this is the temptation. We talked about this on Wednesday when we're going through Revelation. What's the power that Satan has over you? Well, he has one thing. What's, what's the one thing he does? Really good. He, no, it's not temptation. It's the accusations. Now, the, now here's the best part. As, as I'm always telling you this, have the conversation with the person in the mirror, right? Have the hard conversation. The danger of that is always what? That as you have the hard conversation, you're going to lose the argument. You, and, what's, and this is always the rule. It is okay to talk to yourself as long as you don't lose the argument. But anytime sin gets involved and accusations start flying around, there is a temptation to lose the argument. And this is why I reminded you uh, weeks ago, for every look at yourself, do what? Take 10 looks at Christ. Because when you see yourself and you see yourself truly for who you are, you are reminded that you are not good. And that's a good starting point. But the temptation and the accusation of the tempter is to stay there. Wallow in it. Don't do that. Now move to Christ. Look upon his grace and his mercy and recognize that his blood has cleansed me. I am righteous before the throne of God. Israel cannot walk into the tabernacle to stand before the presence of God. Christian, you can. This is the doxology, the celebration of Jude, to him who is able to make you stand in his presence, blameless with great joy. When, when God shows up at the mountain, the cloud and the lightning and the voice and the quaking tells Moses, make sure nobody comes up the mountain. And Moses tells the Israelites, hey, nobody go up the mountain. Israel said what? Duh. <laughs> Duh! Have you seen the mountain? Would you think we were all going to line up and draw straws to see who got to go first? What's wrong with you, man? We didn't need to be told this. We're, we're good. You go talk to God. We'll wait here. That's like, we like that plan. Christian, put you at the bottom of the mountain. What do you want? I want up. Because I do not fear. Because in Christ, his wrath does not abide upon me any longer. In Christ, I am blameless. In Christ, I am righteous. In Christ, I can stand there. And look upon the glory of the Lord and say, I am clean. Never forget that. Because the only power this world has over you is the power to bring you down into that muck. You have been pulled out of it. Yes, we still seem to walk knee deep in it. I get that. But that's not who we are. And that's not where we're going. And that's not what we are supposed to be. Stand 
in the grace and mercy of Christ because that is who he is working on us to be. That is what the dragging of the Holy Spirit is accomplishing. It is to eliminate fear, to remove the the doubt that sin brings, and to stand you before the throne cleansed and whole. So, Veil's torn in Christ, but here it's there. Verse 7, you shall set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Why? So that the priests can wash their faces. Watch, watch their face. Wash, um, thank you, those things. Um, I turned into my children going to bed. Go upstairs, wash your face, wash your hands, and brush your teeth. Turn, turn the priest into my children at this rate. Go into the tabernacle, wash your face, wash your hands, brush your teeth, and then offer sacrifice. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have been a bad idea if somebody told them that every day, would it? <laughs> no. What's the labor here for? Uh, every day. Every Because the one day you don't, they come to Sarah's, you didn't wash your face. I can literally see the dirt still right there. But you washed your hands and brushed your teeth. Okay. I'll, I'll meatloaf this thing and say two out of three ain't bad. That'll be all right. <laughs> hey, that's a good song. I own that CD. <laughs> No, it's a reminder, are the priests now cleansed because they've washed their hands in this basin before going in for the work? No, but it is a reminder that they are cleansed by God and that the work that they offer, they offer because God has worked in them. 1 Peter 3. Corresponding to that, talking about the work that uh, that has been done, baptism now saves you. Uh Uh-oh, don't get twisted on me now. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This is one of the reasons why it's one of the church ordinances, the command to be baptized if you're a believer. Not because it's, a, it's what saves you. It's not like me doing the voodoo in the water, be like, ooh, bippity-boppity-boo, and we're clean. It's a demonstration. It's a proclamation. That's why the words that we say are what we do in Baptist churches. Buried with him in death, raised to walk in the newness of life. The water didn't do that for you. Christ did that for you. It's a testimony, a presentation to the world of what God has already done. That's what the labor is. It's a reminder of the priest that the hands that will offer sacrifice on behalf of the people, the hands that will burn the incense, the hands that will do all of these things have been cleansed and redeemed by God. Not them, but by his work and his accomplishment. All right, rapid fire, because this is where it gets interesting. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the veil for the gateway of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. You shall consecrate it and all its furnishings and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar and the altar shall be most holy. You shall anoint the laver and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister as priest to me. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall anoint them, even as you have anointed their father, that they may minister as priests to me, and their anointing will qualify them for a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. What hasn't been set apart in that? So what has been set apart? Everything. Because it is all being set apart by God for the work of God. Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways are my ways, declares the Lord. You're getting a picture of that right here. Everything for the work of the tabernacle. Best be cleansed. 
Best be anointed, best be set apart, including the clothes that the priests will wear, including the priests themselves, because this God whom you are dealing with is not common. He is not one of the vain things or the idols that you served in Egypt or the things that you will bring with you or the things that you will adopt when you are in the promised land. He is not like any of those things. He is greater and he is mightier. He is one who is able to cleanse, to redeem, and to comfort his people. Welcome to the messed up history of Israel. It's one of the things we've been talking about in Sunday school. Is this is the, I've talked about this again. What does sin corrupt? Everything and who? Everyone. To what level? <laughs> All of it. See, the, 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 the silliness of idolatry is that you keep making these offerings. You keep having your children pass through the fires to Molech. You keep offering them up to Chemosh. You keep going to the brothels that worship Baal in the hopes that life will change and get better. And you keep doing this year after year after year. And what happens? It's the same life. Year after year after year, at some point throughout the millennia of pagan idolatry, you would think somebody would get up and be like, you know, I offered my kids last year and the crops stunk. And you offered your kids the year before that and the crops stunk. And, you know, Dave down the street offered his kids the year before that. And you know what happened to the crops that year. And we tried to blame Dave and we tried to blame you. And then we tried to blame my kids. You know, there's a, you know, it's possible at this point. Now, stick with me, because I know this is, a, this is a weird concept. It's possible they're not listening. It's possible there's no one there to hear us. When does humanity have that thought? No, they, don't, they never have it. We do the same thing over and over. This is the mocking of Elijah on Mount Carmel. He literally sits back and be like, hey, call louder. Baal might be in the bathroom. He can't hear you. I mean, it's literally what he says. He's like, maybe he shout louder. He can't hear you. <laughs> Vern's like, yes. <laughs> Why though? Because it's literally pointing out the folly of idolatry. Israel moves into this land, given victory by Yahweh. Just process this. This is why I always tell you guys, don't build your life or your faith around like big events because they're always going to disappoint you. If you didn't learn this lesson when you were a child, like Christmas is going to be awesome. And then Christmas, two days after Christmas, you're like, it's Tuesday. Because life just has a knack of moving forward. You can't build faith and you can't build Christianity around big events either. Could you imagine standing, walking for seven days around Jericho? Only to have the trumpets blow and everybody shout and the walls just explode. Except for the part where Rahab and her family lives. So that she would be rescued because she hid the spies and trusted in God. And can you imagine seeing that and conquering the city and cursing the city and then moving on and having victory and be like, you know, maybe we should worship their gods. That's just dumb. What's the rule? And yet, why is that the rule? Why do we have to make rules? Because for the same reason you get on a roller coaster, be like, keep your arms, legs, and hands inside the tram at all times. You're like, well, duh, I'm flying around at 90 miles an hour. Why would we think I'm going to get out? If you didn't tell them, some nitwit would do what? They would get out. The reason I say the rule is don't do dumb things is because what do we do constantly? We do dumb things. See, Yahweh has destroyed these idols. He destroyed Egypt. He brought us through the desert. He conquered your cities. He gave us this land. Maybe we should worship their gods too. Because that's the folly of sin and the corruption that it brings. It corrupts you to your very core. Not some of the time. All of them. Now here, Christian, why do you know better? 
Because you have a Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, the completed work of Christ. It's not because you're better, it's just because you have been enlightened. Heart of stone, removed. Heart of flesh, implanted. New heart, new motivations, new thought process leading to new actions. So we look at the world and be like, can you believe these people? Yes! Yes, I can. Because if we're really honest, I'm looking at these people going, I know I'm not supposed to, but why do I keep walking over there? That's why we should never be holier than that. That's why it's not about self-righteousness. It's about an alien righteousness, the work that Christ has completed so that we would shine a light, proclaim a salvation that is not based upon us and our goodness, but upon him and his accomplishment. That's what the holiness of the tabernacle is meant to point you to. Everything is corrupt. I mean, the stupid utensils need to be cleaned and anointed and set apart. You ever considered that other than going to a restaurant? I mean, let's be honest. We go to a restaurant, we pick up the spoon and do what? Grab the little napkin. Because now it's clean, right? Yeah. (laughs) That cloth napkin that they washed (laughs) has now cleaned that spoon perfectly. And it makes me feel better. Is it really cleansed? No. Is the tabernacle really cleansed? Yes. Because we poured oil all over everything? No. Because God has commanded and we have done and he has accomplished it is a constant drumbeat for israel you can't you will fail you will fall short you will try you will mess up your hope is in god your redemption is in god your cleansing is in god your eternity is in god your accomplishment is in god and him alone this is why jesus can show up and immediately start pointing them back Because he's not pointing them to a law that's there to bludgeon them. He's pointing them to a law that's meant to show them the accomplishments of God in his redemption, not their own. His work, the ministry of Christ, is pointing them away from themselves to the work of himself, the work of God. Which is the same thing that is going on here. So, verse 16. Thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Doesn't that deserve like a statue or an oil painting at this point in Exodus? I mean... All right, we talked about this last week. I warned you in my Sunday school class. So Sunday school class, I would be very disappointed in you if you get this wrong. Well, I think you came after this, so you're exempt. (laughs) Vern's off the hook because he was late, (laughs) which means we judge you for a whole different reason. (laughs) What separates the Israelites at Sinai while Moses is up the mountain from the Israelites and what they've been doing since then? Because before, when Moses goes up the mountain, let's, let's, let's think about it this way. What's the track record of Israel, the nation of Israel, in between Exodus 12 when they leave Egypt and Exodus 32 when Moses goes up the mountain and then has to come back down and throw the tablets at somebody? What's their track record and their consistent work? <laughs> Every time you turn around, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we had graves in Egypt we could have buried ourselves in, we had food in Egypt, we're at the edge of the Red Sea, you just brought us out here to the ocean to kill us. I mean, he's been gone for 40 days, what are we going to do? I mean, it's like, oh my goodness, if somebody doesn't strangle these people, let me do it, please. Since Moses has come back down the mountain, though, how has this people been? They're a whole different crew. 
Exodus 35, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and holy garments. Then all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets, all articles of gold. So did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. Told you one of the rules for reading your Bible. Okay, let's, we always run down the rules. So, Behold means stop and pay attention. Therefore means ask yourself what the therefore is there for. So we go back and figure out what's going on. Never, ever, ever read one verse. And if you hear something repeated constantly, that might be important. So like that rapid fire section we went through, do you notice, thus it was anointed and it was set apart and it was holy and it was anointed and it was set apart and it was holy. Kind of a theme there, right? That little section of Exodus 35, what was the theme? Heart was moved, whose spirit stirred. Who does that? God does. What separates Egypt, what separates Israel walking since they've left Egypt from Israel walking now since Moses has come back down the mountain is God. The work that he has accomplished, the work that he has done. This is one of the reasons why I rejoice over the fact that Israel is such a mess of a lout leaving Egypt. Because it demonstrates that if left to their own devices, what will this people do? And not just fail a little bit. They will fail spectacularly. I mean, it's like, they're not just going to like mess up a little bit. They're not just going to like scuff the floor. They're going to burn the house down if left to their own devices. They're not breaking a window. They're destroying everything. Opening The ground will open up and swallow everything whole. They are going to destroy every last bit of it. And yet they're obedient. And yet they're accomplishing. Why? Ezekiel will point you to this. Ezekiel chapter 36. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. This is a picture of it. A complete change of this people. A complete 180 from, we want to go back to Egypt. We had food and water and places to die. This is the desert. It's terrible. And we're suddenly from Southern California. And I don't know why. Sorry. I, I, don't, know how to not com- I don't know how to complain in any other voice. Doesn't sound right. Just sounds like you should be 13 from the valley when you start complaining. I'm hungry and tired. <laughs> and yet now they're like, we have gold. Take it. We have stuff. Take it. What must we do? How must we make this right? Not because they're good, but God is good. Verse 17. Now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Do not miss that. You ready? It's been a year. And at the same time, it's only been a year. Now, I had to write all this down because there's no way I was keeping track of everything. So bear with me, all right? So they left Egypt. And Pharaoh was destroyed. So when they leave Egypt, that was what? One, my brain just stopped working. 112, 115, somewhere in there. They, keep, they take the lamb on the 10th of the month. I should have written that one down because I thought I'd remember it. Now I don't. They take the lamb on the 10th of the month and it's got to live with them for four days, four or five days, right? Yeah, somebody, somebody who actually remembers this. Hang on. <laughs> this is the professional, professionalism you come here for, right? 
the great ability. Uh, this will be going to be months. Speak to all the congregation. Take a lamb. The lamb is for the household. It's too small for the lamb. You shall be an unblemished lamb. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. So yeah, it's four days. And then you'll kill it. So they're leaving Egypt the night and morning of 114-115. So now we're traveling. We know that Pharaoh gets destroyed. They cross. Uh, they praise God, Exodus 15. And then they travel three days into the wilderness. So we're maybe somewhere at the end of the first month. Give or take, right? The manna comes on the 15th day of the second month. And we know they celebrated Sabbath, so we've now moved towards the end of the second month. They traveled around and they had no water. They defeated Amalek in battle. And we're told that they arrived at Sinai on the first day of the third month. They sit around for a couple days because God doesn't call out to them until the third day. And that's when he speaks to the entirety of the congregation. He gives them the Ten Commandments and all those ordinances before Moses is summoned up the mountain. Moses is there for 40 days and 40 nights, so we go from 3, 4, 3, 5 until what? Middle of the fourth month? And then Moses comes down the mountain, the whole nasty golden calf thing. He chucks tablets at people, grinds up the calf, puts it in the water, makes him drink it. He goes back up the mountain to speak to God to make atonement for them. And then he's back up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So that would be what? Middle of month four to what? End of month five, beginning of month six at the most? Now he comes down the mountain, they've been working on this stuff, and now it's six months later. (laughs) So you have a couple of options here. The first option is Moses comes down somewhere at the end of month five, beginning of month six, and it took them six months to do all this. I like to give the craftsman anointed and chosen by God a little bit more credit than that. Like he didn't pick me. It'd be like, okay, here's a board, and okay, which, how do we measure this thing? I mean, I'd like to think they knew what they were doing, right? And if you know what you're doing, jobs go a little bit quicker. So do I think it took them six months to do all this? No, I don't. Maybe a month or two, if we're being generous with the time frame. I mean, what else they got to do? I mean, if you're one of the craftsmen of God at the foot of Mount Sinai, what else are you doing that day? You get up in the morning, you go gather some manna. God's providing you everything else. So other than that, we're just kind of sitting in the desert with nothing else to do but sewing and building and fashioning. So I would think two months would be a pretty long time, actually. Which means, how much of Scripture really covers the day-to-day life? Or how much of day-to-day life is really covered in Scripture? And the answer is, not a lot. I always like to point this out by way of example. Go look at the life of Abraham. And realize that we get Abraham from, what, 70, 75 years old until he's 175 years old. And we cover like nine days of his life. (laughs) And you realize that most of his life is just what? Just living. Just day in and day out. We got to go tend the flocks and we got to go get water from the stream or we got to go dig a well. You know, we got to go beat the kids because they did something stupid again. Or we, You know, it's just, it's just life. It's just life. This is why your New Testament tells you what it tells you in things like 1 Thessalonians 4. As to the love of the brethren, you have no need of anyone to write you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. To make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business. Work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. In other words, when is Paul exhorting the Thessalonians to faithfulness? All the time. And what should they be seeking to do? Live a quiet life. What does that mean? 
I mean, most of us, that's pretty easy to do, right? How many of you are famous? Like, are the paparazzi at your door? If they are, don't invite me over. I mean, how many Thessalonians in the church were famous? Like, they were walking down the street, and people were like, oh, look, it's Joe. He's going down to the church. Let's see what's up. Nobody cared. How hard is it to lead a quiet life? Shouldn't be that hard. Why do we have to be encouraged to do so? Because the lie of the world and the temptation and the accusations are you need to be more. You need to do more. Be bigger. Be more well-known. And the vast majority of human life is what? It's boring. It's boring is all get out. Why? Because it's supposed to be. Which is why, why I always urge you to examine your life now. Be faithful now. How am I faithful in the mundane, simple things? How I go to school, how I go to work, how I talk to the neighbors, how I shop at Walmart. All the simple little basic stuff. Because welcome to your offerings in faithfulness unto God. It's just daily life. This is an example of this. They've been wandering around doing this stuff for a year. Even if all of this work took right up until the end of the 12th month, and they have finished it in uh, the first day of the second, the first day of the first month of the second year is like next, is tomorrow for Moses. That means we've still glossed over months of work with no idea what's going on. They live faithfully. They went and picked up manna. They went and gathered water. They went and worshipped. They were preparing. They were just living life day in and day out. Christian, this is why I tell you that the joy of your life has to be in your daily fight. And I choose it that way because, yes, we can use daily walk because that's the typical New Testament thing, but I think in our world we get a little soft on that. We're fighting day in and day out to shine a light and to put to death sin in our lives. And that's where the joy has to be because you're not going to have these grand victories. What I mean by that is how many of you want your kids to like grow up and fall into drugs and alcohol and all the dark things of life so that they can one day turn to Christ to be delivered from all of it? I mean, that would be an awesome victory of God, right? Do you want that for your children and grandchildren? No! Not even a little bit. You want them to do what? You want them to grow up and learn. And, and one day it's just theirs. Their faith is just theirs. Because you were teaching and their Sunday school teacher was teaching and children's church was teaching and they were occasionally listening to some of the random things that I say. And then one day, the stuff that you were telling them, it's just theirs. And now they believe it, and they walk it, and they follow it. That's rejoicing. You know when that's done? It's done here. It's done at the dinner table. It's done in the car ride to school. It's done on the ride to church. It's done on walks in the park. It's done at soccer practice. And it's done in all the little places. And if that's done for them there, guess when it's done for you? When you're cooking dinner, when you're packing lunch, when you're driving to work, when you're shopping in the store, these are all the little places where you are offering your lives unto God, living a simple, basic life unto Christ, seeing how do I honor him as I stand in a checkout line. And if you've never thought that that was a challenge, you need to go to the store with me because apparently you have a better shopping experience, or I need to go to the store with you. <laughs> Maybe you don't want to go to the store with me. Because there's all of these little places that sin rears its ugly head. And if we're not paying attention because we're only worried about the big things, we lose all the little tiny ones. Have you ever done any, um, any, debts, any debt recovery study? You know what they tell you to do? Like you've got all these debts, which one should you tackle first? Common sense would almost think, tackle the big one, right? Save up all my money. No, tackle the little ones. 
Because as you get rid of the little ones, you get a little bit more money to tackle the next one up and you slowly get rid of stuff. Yeah, he's right though. And you, and you get a little bit of momentum and it feels good because I saved this little money and I cleared this debt and I can, now I can do it for the next one and the next one and the next one. That's the model of sanctification. Yes, do I want to tackle the big problems? Absolutely. But I tackle the big one by doing what? Getting rid of this one and this one and chopping this one up. And, and now the energy I was spending here, I've freed up to spend on that. And just slowly walking, defeating, and accomplishing because I'm paying attention to the day-to-day life. It's the stuff Scripture skips because it's pointing you to who? God. In what? All things. All things. The God who was so concerned with that tabernacle has not forgotten his people. The manna still comes every day. The water is still there in the wilderness every day. The presence of God is still on that mountain every day. He hasn't left them. He hasn't forgotten them. The angel of the Lord that's leading the camp is still walking in the midst of them every day. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, it hasn't gone away every single day. Because God cares about every single day. That's where we walk. That's where we live. That's where we worship. That's where we serve. That's where we're sanctified. That's where we praise. That's where we disciple. That's where we evangelize. That's where we do all of these things. It's just in the mundane things of life. And it's the things that God cares about because it's the things that he's involved in. And my pages are stuck together. (laughs) Excuse me. So, verse 18. Big section time again. You ready? Moses erected the tabernacle and laid its sockets, and he set up its boards and inserted its bars and erected its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he took the testimony and put it into the ark and attached the poles to the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil for the screen and screened off the ark of the testimony, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. He set the arrangement of bread in order on it before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. He lighted the lamps before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he placed the golden altar, I'm sorry, the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the veil, and he burned fragrant incense on it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering before the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the meal offering, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he placed the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. From it, Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they had entered the tabernacle, I'm sorry, when they entered the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. All right, what was your repeated phrase? Just the Lord who commanded Moses, just in case. Just in case, we'll go back to the very beginning. Just in case you thought this horse was dead and we should stop kicking it. Nope. You're going to be reminded, where does this come from? God, who cleanses. God, who redeems. God, who justifies. God, who's the one who's going to carry them along. God. Now, realize something else fun. Every time the camp moves, they got to redo that. <laughs> Remember, we talked about this as we were as we're giving the command and building the materials. What was like number one priority on the tabernacle? Portability. It's got to move because we're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Are we in the promised land? No. Rule of life. If you haven't gotten to where you're going, you aren't there yet. 
Have they gotten to where they're supposed to be? No, so they're not done, which means all this stuff we're going to put up, all this stuff we're going to put together, every time the pillar of cloud goes up, we got to take it all apart, pack it up, and carry it along. And then when the pillar of cloud comes down, we set it all up again and make camp in a specific way every single time. And we're going to do it just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Welcome back to the uh, mundane things of life, Christian. This is why you get the warnings you get from things like Galatians 6. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. You had the forget about it moments, the I don't care anymore moments. Scripture's aware of that, and Scripture prepares you for that, which is why, again, I tell you to be faithful when? Now. I don't care. You're right. Okay, I'm going to say the mean thing this morning. I don't care that you were faithful the 27 times before this. I care if you're faithful now. Because if we're not now, then there's the danger about the next time and the next time. We've talked about this. We use this example. Paul talks about this when he, when he encourages Timothy to deal with Scripture. Um, being not ashamed workman, rightly handling the word of truth, right? It's literally cutting the word straight. What did Paul do for a living when he wasn't preaching? <laughs> After that, he's a tent maker. First step to making a tent would be what? Cutting some material. If you've ever cut material or done any sewing, I got to go from here to the other end, and it's got to be what? Because Now, what happens if I'm a quarter of an inch off at the beginning of my cut, and i got to cut three yards of fabric? What's going to happen at the other end? I'm not going to be off a little bit. I'm going to be off way at the other end. Paul got that. He understood that. Um, the example that I take, because I don't sew, because it's just, I, I'm just not good at it. I stab myself more than I do the fabric. Um, oh, sorry. Tried to scratch my nose and hit my microphone. I apologize for that one. Is um, driving a boat. There's no lines in the road. What do you do? You pick something out there in front of you and look at it. If you drive a car, what's the first thing your driver's ed teacher told you? Look right over the hood of the car at the highway, right? You ever, did you ever do that just goofing off? If you haven't, not today because today the roads are not good. So the next time it's spring and the roads are nice, drive on a nice empty road looking five feet in front of the car and have a passenger so they can yell at you when you make them nauseous. Because you're going to be all over the place because you're not, all those little corrections that you're making are going to be magnified because you're only looking right here. The way you drive is to look down the road, to look what's way ahead of you. Same idea. See, Vern can drive tractors. There you go. You look out there. If I look right here, that's how you, that's how you get those fields that look like this. Yeah, there you go. And if you're ever a passenger in the car, pay attention. If the person's doing it rightly and looking out, their hands are just like this, right? No, the driver's doing what all the time? Do you even notice you're doing it half the time? No, because you're looking out and you're making the corrections. This is your Christian walk. This is your Christian encouragement, is to understand that I grow weary in doing what is good because I'm only looking at it now in what's been behind me. I'm, con I'm looking, well, I had to do this, and I, ha I had to teach you this again, and half the time you're talking to somebody else, and the other half the time when you say that you're talking to who? Yourself. I had to teach you this again. <laughs> Be faithful now. In other words, have a long view and make your simple course corrections. Keep the long-term destination in mind. If you haven't gotten to where you're going, you aren't there yet. 
Christian, we're going to eternity. We're going to the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That's the thing we long for. That's the thing we seek. We aren't there, which means while we've been redeemed from the muck and the mire, as I told you earlier, we're still half the time what? Walking knee deep in it. Which means if you're not careful, you're going to step in a pothole and you're going to sink up to here, and that's no fun. How do we avoid that? Eyes on the prize. Keeping our eyes up. Hebrews 12. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses. By the way, those witnesses are the heroes of the faith in chapter 11. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. When you run, do you look at your feet? No, you look where you're going. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is your example from the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours. I think Jesus was like, yeah, we'll do this crucifixion thing. That's going to be awesome. No, the way you get through that is by looking what? For the joy set before him, what the cross will accomplish, what is beyond it, the peace, the presence, the power, all that God will accomplish because of the work. You look beyond it. Christian, this is how you don't grow weary in this world. This is how you can continue the fight in faith and do the good work. Is because you're not worried about how many times you've already had to do it. You worry about now, and you worry about now in light of eternity and where it is going. Every time they move, they got to take it down and put it back up again. And you know at some point somebody is like, I'm sick and tired of this bolt. Because you know how no matter how well they made that, you know there was one that never fit quite right. And once you, you ever build anything and then move it across your yard? Put it together and how is it? Oh, it's beautiful. It fits and it's nice. What happens the first time you take it apart? And now you got to go put it back together again. It's never the... <laughs> yeah, you don't want to put the tabernacle back together and be like, what do we do with these boards? You put them in... Yeah, all right, we're doing it again. We're doing it again. Don't let him be in charge of it, Andy. You laugh, but this is life. How do you avoid that? When we take apart the tabernacle, we're taking it apart to the glory of God. When we put the tabernacle back up, we put it back up to the glory of God. When we carry it and when we move it, we move it to the glory of God. Yeah, well, we've moved it to the glory of God 47 times. I get that. We're walking around the mountain again because you people wouldn't go into the land. If you'd hurry up and die, we'd get there sooner. I wonder how many times that conversation got had. You're going to wander 40 years until this generation is dead. Would you die already so we can go in? <laughs> how do you walk? Now. Where do you worry about it? Now. We've done the mountain lap 28 times. I don't care. We're going to do it to the glory of God. Now. Christian, this is instructive for us. How many times have you looked at the sin of the world and be like, they're never going to understand this? I'm tired of explaining this. I'm tired of talking about this. I'm tired of working on myself. I'm tired of talking to the neighbors. I'm tired of being nice to these people. I'm tired of all of it. Because you're worried about all the times you've done it before. You've lost eternity, and you're focused on yourself. What was Christ's ministry? What I tell you? Raising their eyes up. What is God doing here? Raising their eyes up so that you can focus on where you're going so that you can then walk faithfully. So he erected the court, all the tabernacle and the altar, and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus Moses finished the work. Did he really? <laughs> See, I like to ask the fun questions of you guys, because you're like, yes, no, maybe. 
The answer is yes. Is the work finished? No. Was that Moses' job? No. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building. Is Moses Christ? No. Is he the king? No. Is he the prophet? No. He's a picture, and he's accomplishing the work that God has given him to do. So in that respect, yes, yes he has. Christian, that's good news, because guess, guess where you are? You're going to perfect you? You're going to fix your sin? You're going to fix all your problems? So why are you fighting? Because God has promised to accomplish, and God has promised to work, and God has promised to cooperate, and God has promised to carry you across the finish line. He will complete his work so that we are able to do our work. And it's not fun, but it's simple. It's day-to-day life, walking, trudging, plowing through, knowing that it's good. What makes it good? The fact that we're doing it? No. The fact that he has commanded it. The fact that he has called us to it. That as our lives are lived, they are lived as an offering. And it is a good offering as it is a faithful offering. What does that faithfulness look like on like random Tuesdays? Because you know I just love random Tuesdays. What makes, what makes your offering good that day? You're living an offering under faith. Can I tell you what that's going to look like? Nope. Can you tell you what that's going to look like? Probably not. But as you're paying attention, as you're focused on eternity, as the things that hit you and sideswipe you and come across and the random stuff that finds along, you'll be fine. Because the Holy Spirit is working, God has accomplished, Christ has redeemed, and the work will be done. And as you offer your life in faith, you will have answer, you will have light to shine, and you will have sanctification to be accomplished. And I can trust in that because I can trust in God. Because all that he has promised, he has brought to fulfillment. And that which he has not fulfilled yet, he has not forgotten. Always remember, Christian, where do we stand? We stand righteous because of the work of Christ. And we stand accomplished because of the promises of the Spirit and the continued working that he is bringing day in and day out. When do we see that? in the small things we do here and there, in the small places that we walk, so we can rejoice in trust because of who he is and what he has done. Let's pray.